All right, well, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Now, if you're new with us, we're working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And as I just said, we are in John, chapter 4. In fact, we'll finish it today. And the last time we saw our Lord Jesus Christ, he was up in Samaria ministering. Verse 43. Now after two days he departed from there and went to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now Jesus had been in Jerusalem, his own country, which was Jewish territory, for the Passover. John 2 verse 13 tells us that. But because he was not honored uh, in his country, what does that mean? Well, the religious leadership had really rejected him as Messiah. And, uh, of course, from this point, maybe about a year and a half to two years later, their animosity would grow so intense they would uh, have him crucified. Right now, it's a simmering animosity. And so he purposes to leave the area, Jerusalem, and go north into Galilee. Now, Galilee was Gentile country. There was Jewish people that lived up there, no doubt. But in Matthew 4.15, it's called Galilee of the Gentiles because it was a mostly a Gentile population up there, but um, he needed to stop off at Samaria because if you're going to Jerusalem due north into Samaria, or excuse me, into Galilee, you're going to go right through Samaria. And that was uh, absolutely fine because that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to uh, bring the gospel to the Samaritan people. We studied that in John 4 earlier, the woman by the well. And, uh, of course, eventually uh, pretty much the whole town came came to him and he uh, he preached to them. They believed in him and his word, and they were saved. So he stays two more days, teaching and discipling them, and then he continued north. Verse 45, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. Now, uh, a good number of Galileans, Jewish folks that lived in Galilee, had uh, been at the feast in Jerusalem, Feast of Passover, and they had witnessed the Lord cleansing the temple earlier in John's Gospel, chapter 2. Also, the miracles he performed, which I guess were a good, good number. Uh, we read about that in John 2, verse 23. And so when he got to Galilee, they received him. What does that mean? Well, be careful, because in John chapter 2, verse 23, it talks about how he did these miracles, and many believed in him. But then it goes on to say, but he didn't believe in them, really, because he knew what was in man. And apparently what they believed was not, hey, he's my Savior, Messiah, I want to give him my life. It's like, here's a great prophet, he's a great miracle worker, he's really entertaining us, isn't he? And so when he got to Galilee, I kind of uh, feel that's exactly what uh, is meant by they received him. Yeah, they received him as a miracle worker, uh, maybe as a prophet. Did they receive him as their Messiah and Savior? At this point, probably not, although some maybe did. Now, the first point in my outline this morning is something I'm calling the desperate father. The desperate father. Verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Remember the wedding of Cana. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, this nobleman lived in Capernaum. And Capernaum was a wealthy city on the northwestern shores of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus conducted a good portion of his ministry. 
the city had a thriving fishing industry, and it was also the economic center of the region, wealthy city. Uh, Jesus would eventually, because he spent so much time up there ministering, he eventually made um, Capernaum his unofficial headquarters uh, when he was up in the Galilee ministering. Uh, the word nobleman is the Greek word basilikos and means king's man, king's man. Uh, he was a royal officer of high standing in King Herod's court. Uh, this would be Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who ordered the babies of Bethlehem killed, two years old and under, to keep Messiah from reigning. So this was his son. They were a real fun family. And um, so... Here we see a guy, and uh, he comes to Jesus uh, from Capernaum to uh, Cana. Uh, he was a Gentile. He's a nobleman. There were no Jewish noblemen. So he was a Gentile. But uh, he was a man of great influence, power, and wealth. A man, if he were alive today, would no doubt be a top executive, maybe a VP in a Fortune 500 company, drive a BMW, live in, uh, in Malibu or Manhattan, something like that. He was pretty well connected. Uh, he was the quintessential yuppie, young guy, all right? By the world standards, uh, he was the epitome of success, uh, a man who had it all, except for one thing. His young son was seriously ill. Verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, when it says that this father implored Jesus to come down to Capernaum. Capernaum was about 20 miles from Cana. And uh, the Greek, it's when it says that uh, he implored Jesus, the Greek uh, is, is uh, in the imperfect tense, was imploring, was imploring, uh, indicating that he repeatedly implored, really begged uh, Jesus to come and cure his son's disease. In other words, guys, this was a desperate man, a desperate man. No doubt he had used up all resources that he had. Um, had the finest doctors, no doubt, look at his son. But uh, it seemed like it was hopeless. And when you realize, uh, he was a man who used, was used to getting his way by barking out orders that subordinates would instantly carry out. A proud, powerful man who was at this moment reduced to a helpless beggar pleading for mercy on behalf of his son who was at the point of death. And when you consider all that, well, this becomes an incredibly powerful and poignant scene. You know, it's interesting how quickly success, earthly power, and material wealth fade into irrelevance when someone we love, maybe a child or grandchild, is sick and dying, and you, with all your money and influence, are helpless to save them. That's the scene the Holy Spirit is presenting here. You know, adversity, as somebody has said, is the great equalizer of the human condition. And none of us are immune. Somebody has said, trouble is not a gate crasher in the arena of life. It, is, it has a reserved seat there. Heartache has a pass key to every home, end quote. Or, as the Bible puts it in Job 5, verse 7, man is born to adversity as surely as the sparks of a fire fly upwards. One writer said there's nothing like a life-threatening illness, either in your own life or in the life of someone you love, to show you how little money, prestige, and materialism really means, end quote. Guys, it may sound trite, but it's nonetheless true. The most important things in life are the things that money can't buy. That's just the way it is. 
Now, the response that Jesus gives to this father, who is there pleading, he might be on his knees for all we know, pleading with the Lord to uh, come and save his son's life. The response Jesus gives to him is a little bit, well, it takes us back. Verse 48, then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And that brings us to our second point of the outline. The desperate father, secondly, the displeased savior. Why would Jesus say this? It sounds harsh and abrupt. The Lord was obviously displeased with those living in the areas he ministered in, but but why? Why? Well, I think commentator Hugh Ross really nails it. I think he really sums up what's going on. Let me read it to you. He said, and I quote, with unerring accuracy, our Lord put his finger on the weakness of the people's faith. They were following Jesus as if he were a religious sideshow. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Don't miss the latest miracle. Get your popcorn here. Uh, crowd in close, folks, so you can see the new added appendage miracle. Cross goes on. There was such an extreme focus on signs and wonders that the people were missing his real identity. It seems that the poor, confused nobleman had this same idea because of his repeated emphasis on Jesus to come down to Capernaum to heal his son. He thought that if Jesus would work his magic, his son would be healed. Even today, those who are constantly seeking for signs and wonders and miracles uh, to confirm their faith may be missing the intent of those miracles, to know Jesus himself. If we focus on sensationalism, miracles, and signs, our focus is not on Christ himself, who alone is sufficient. At the same time, our Lord was not deprecating signs and miracles because he was, about, because he was in fact going to heal the man's son. But that sign would lead the man to faith in him. The thrust of what Jesus was saying was, Oh, that you would think less about the wonders, the miracles and more about me. He wanted them to go beyond signs and miracles to trust in him and believe in his word, end quote. And I totally agree with that. Let me just say this. Jesus fully intended to heal this man's son, but he first had to deal with the father himself. The Lord Jesus is more concerned about our character than he is about our comfort, even though he's concerned about that too. He's more concerned with our eternal preparation than he is about our present situation, though he's concerned about that as well. If you don't understand that, guys, if you don't understand that God is working in your life as a Christian to give you the best eternity possible, which means when you finally are taken to heaven, that waiting for you are an exceeding number of eternal rewards, if you don't understand that, that God is working not for your temporal comfort, but for your eternal best. Well, you're going to stumble your entire life, your entire Christian life, over whether or not God is really a good and loving God because of all the things he allows to come into your life. Look, a big, big part of the problem back then and especially today is that too many people have a concept of God that he is this benevolent grandfather figure whose only purpose in life is to sit up in heaven and drop blessings down on them. And the blessings that they define them are success, wealth, 
material things like palatial houses, uh, you know, um, luxury automobiles, boats, summer homes. You can, you know the list. This view of God is warped and perverted, their, their perception of who he really is and what his purposes really are uh, for them. And guys, again, it's not temporal. It's eternal. We have to understand that. We have to start looking at life from an eternal vantage point. Paul even said it in, in Ephesians 2. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realm. And part of that means that he gives us, that gives us an eternal perspective of life. Uh, Solomon viewed life for many years from earth's vantage point. And the conclusion he constantly came to in the book of Ecclesiastes was emptiness and vanity. Everything is emptiness and vanity where? Under the sun. It wasn't until he was elevated or he allowed himself to be elevated up above the sun. That's why he writes in chapter 3, God has put eternity in our hearts. We have to remember that. We can push that out of our consciousness and still live for time. But then you're going to want to make God your servant to amass on the earth treasures when he says, don't do that. Send up to heaven treasures which will be waiting for you when you get there. One of the greatest blessings that any parent, now we're talking about how God works. One of the greatest blessings that any parent, and of course God the Father is the ultimate parent, but any, one of the greatest blessings any parent can bestow upon their children is a godly character. A godly character. And when I talk about that, I mean honesty, integrity, you know, kindness, love, a good work ethic, that kind of thing. These qualities take time and effort. Listen, time and effort to build into our children and sometimes it's unpleasant and even painful for the kids. But that's what the Bible means when it says to us parents. And not easy for us as, either, but as Christian parents. But that's what uh, the, the writer of the Proverbs meant when he said in Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he or she should go. And when they are old, they won't depart from it. Notice he uses the word train and not teach. I can teach you, if I was a football coach and I had a blackboard up here, I can teach you how to play football. But if I were to train you how to play football, that's a different story, right? I think back on my high school years when I played football. And, of course, uh, the school year started in September, but in August we started with double practices. Uh, 9 o'clock in the morning, two hours, and then 3 o'clock in the afternoon you come back for another blessed two-hour uh, practice. I mean, it's 90, 95 degrees out, and you're bashing helmets, and you're tackling people. And then we always ended with wind sprints. So you, you line up, you run 20 yards as fast as you can, stop to run, run back 20 yards as fast as you can, and over, over, the coach, go on, let's go, come on, come on. Guys, we're dropping on the ground, you know. We're running into the locker room and pulling guys out of the way to stick our face under, literally under the faucet, turn it on. We were so thirsty. It was incredible. That's training a person to play something like football. It's a lot harder. Look, life is not a game, but if we kind of put it that way, um, training our children for the game of life is the most important thing we can do, and it's probably the hardest. But it's important 
and it's going to yield an incredible reward someday. You're going to have kids that will grow up to be responsible, hardworking, virtuous adults. We talk about character building, you know. We constantly cry out to the Lord, don't we? You know, Lord help, Lord heal, Lord provide, Lord fix. And that's fine. He wants us to. But if he doesn't answer our prayers immediately, let's understand that patience and faith also build Christian character. Now we'll talk about that more the next point. But let me just say this. Jesus is the great physician is constantly performing heart surgery on us. You know that? He described it in John 15 as the father pruning. There's different metaphors. But God is always wanting to identify and remove certain character traits from us that are left over from the old life. Now, of course, as the great physician, you won't probably seek out a physician, especially a surgeon, if you have no symptoms. It's only when you have symptoms, right, that you go to a doctor and uh, possibly then need surgery. It's the symptoms that indicate there's a problem. Well, in our Christian life, there's all kinds of negative things that are produced and we're still, we're walking in the flesh. Uh, bad habits, uh, foul language, um, different things. And the Lord allows these things to come to the surface so that we can see them because then we run to the great physician and say, Lord, help. Well, I thought I was through with that. I thought I had victory over that. And the Lord would say, no, there's still some things in your heart we need to deal with. And so he takes them one at a time. He's always doing heart surgery on us, the end result being a healthier walk with him and a greater work for him. And uh, one author put it with regard to this very passage. He said, Christ's words here are mercifully surgical. Because he understood what the, what the Lord was doing. The father came to get help for his son. Jesus said, oh, well, I intend to help him, but you know what? There's some issues with you I want to deal with, etc. So Jesus had every intention of healing this man's son. I'm convinced of that. But he saw in this father something he knew had to be dealt with first, a weakness in this man's faith. And that was his obsession with the miraculous. You know... Some people just have to see God do a trick before they'll believe. In fact, the world and even many Christians have a motto they love to quote. Seeing is believing, right? As you read the Bible, you realize God says just the opposite. Believing is seeing. Or, as Jesus took it a step farther in the upper room the week after he rose from the dead and Thomas was finally in that room, Jesus came walking through uh, into the room. And um, said to Thomas, Thomas, you don't believe? Put your fingers in the nail prints in my hands, the, your hand in the spare wound in my side, and be believing and not unbelieving. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those people who believe without seeing, who believe what I have said in my word and take it at face value. They don't need, you know, miracles and supernatural stuff all the time that read the word, know it's my word, and act on it because they know it's truth. There's a lot of Christians today in various Christian circles who have gotten hooked on seeing signs and wonders. 
And as such, they now crave them like addicts craving their next fix. In fact, where Jesus, when Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, he's talking about miracles, you will by no means believe. The word he uses for wonders is the Greek word tarada, tarada. And that is a word that stresses the awe, the excitement, the exhilaration, the rush of adrenaline that seeing a miracle performs or produces, I should say, uh, in those who witness it. In other words, Jesus uses a word that implied these people were nothing more than thrill seekers. Miracle junkies, if I can put it that way, who only wanted to see miracles for the rush of emotion they got out of it, the thrill. However, many of them, like this father, I'm convinced, tied their faith in Christ to the miracles he did. In other words, the miracles became the basis for their faith. Now, hold on to that. We'll get back to that in a moment. But apparently, Jesus, knowing this man's heart, knew he was thinking along these lines. I've heard of this guy, you know, but now I need his help. I've heard he's the Messiah. Uh, okay, but I'll tell you what, if he does this miracle and heals my son, then I'll believe in him. Many people today feel the same way. If God comes through for me and heals me or my loved one of the cancer, then I'll believe in him. But if not, he's a fraud or he's not even real. Well, listen, there are many Christians today who have what we'll call baby faith, which has to be fed a diet of signs and wonders. And where they're absent, they manufacture them. I was telling First Service that we're, you know, we're teaching on the gifts of the Spirit on Wednesday night. And we've already looked at the gifts of healings and miracles. And I believe that God still heals and works miracles today. But if you turn on some of these programs with these charismatic preachers and pastors, you get the impression from what they say that God's raising the dead every week in their churches. Which begs the question, how many dead people you got there? But, you know, I mean, people are getting out of wheelchairs in droves. You know, and blind are giving their sight and everything like that. Look, and I even know that some people who were skeptical, uh, sought out these folks that got saved, uh, got uh, healed apparently, and uh, interviewed them, and uh, uh, most of them, if not all, I can't remember, it was, I think it was pretty much all of them, it was, they weren't really healed. Now, does that mean God, nobody ever gets healed? Of course not. I believe God still heals. But let me just say this. That kind of faith is shallow, weak, emotional, and experiential. And just as no child can live in a constant diet of dessert, neither can a child of God live in a constant diet of signs and wonders. Christians need the meat of the word to grow strong and healthy in their faith. And I believe that in a roundabout way, Jesus is addressing that very issue here with this man. He's trying to take this man's weak faith, which was predicated upon the miraculous, and elevate it to a strong faith that was predicated upon the word of God, like the Samaritans that we just studied, by the way. He had just come from Samaria, right? After the woman by the well ran into town, she got saved, ran into town to tell uh, the folks there that, that uh, you know, the Messiah is here. So the men of the city came out and talked to Jesus. And he preached the word to them. 
And they got saved. He did no miracles for them. They just simply believed his word and were saved. And that's the kind of faith the Lord wants from all of us. All of us. Um, this nobleman was probably... Um, well, he felt a little rebuked by Jesus' comment. But listen, Jesus' aim was not to offend him, but rather to bring him to saving faith in himself. Lord, guys, the Lord is always trying to lift our faith to new spiritual heights, which I believe he was attempting to do with this father right here, this desperate man. Uh, now, one thing I do commend this father for was his ten tenacity. The third point I'm going to bring to you is what I'll call the determined suppliant. The determined suppliant. Verse 49, the nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now, he had asked the Lord to do that earlier. Jesus said, you know, you people won't believe unless you see signs. And now he repeats his request. Sir, come down. The idea is it's imperative. Please come down now before my child dies. This father, undeterred by Jesus' mild rebuke, persisted in his request or in his supplication. Supplication, guys, is a form of prayer. Therefore, a suppliant is one who prays to the Lord earnestly for an answer to prayer. That's what this man was doing. He models prayer right now. He's being lifted up by the Holy Spirit. Keep that in mind. In fact, he was a persistent suppliant who kept praying until Jesus answered with a promise that his son had been healed. And only then did he go his way, trusting his prayer had been answered. You know, early in Jesus' ministry, when his disciples came to him and asked him to teach them to pray, one of the things he stressed was the importance of persistence in our prayers. Turn to Luke 11. I'll read it to you out of the NLT 2, second edition. Luke 11, starting with verse 5. <coughs> then teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. He says, suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, "My friend, excuse me, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door is locked for the night, and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your, listen, shameless persistence. Now look, when the Lord Jesus taught, sometimes he taught by comparison, and other times he taught by contrast. When he said in Matthew 5, you know, love your enemies just like your father loves his enemies. He causes his sun to shine on the fields of the, of the unjust. He causes his rain to fall on the, on the fields of, you know, his enemies. Love your enemies that way. Do good for them. So he, he was teaching us to love our enemies by comparing that love with the father's love. But then there were times he taught by contrast. This is one of those times, folks. All right? 
you know, you read this and you say, well, he's teaching on prayer. What, what is the point here? That, you know, my father really doesn't want to help me? Uh, you know, father, can you help me get away, kid? I'm busy. Kind of a thing. Is that what he's teaching here? And, and if I just keep, if I keep knocking and persistent, uh, bombarding heaven with prayers, I'm going to wear him down. He's like, oh, fine. Here, take what you want. No, that's not what the Lord's saying. He's teaching, look, if even a guy who can't be bothered to help you as a friend can be persuaded through persistence to give you what you need, how much more so your Heavenly Father, who loves you, wants to give good things to you? Well, then if he wants to give good things, why do I have to be persistent in my prayers? Because for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And therefore, we have to realize sometimes the answer is, it's not no, it's just not yet. So keep praying, keep praying, is what the Lord went on to teach in verse 9. And so I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Again, guys, persistence in prayer is the lesson he is communicating to us. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, This is not the taunt of an indifferent God playing hard to get, treating us like puppies, trying to teach us to beg. And if we stand up on our hind legs and yap loud enough, he'll drop a biscuit in our mouth. No, this is the heart of a loving father exhorting us, even pleading with us to stay in constant communion with him because he loves us so much, end quote. And so I commend this nobleman for praying persistently, albeit inaccurately. What do you mean? Well, he's basically saying, Lord, hurry up before my son dies and it's too late. It's never too late for God. I mean, Lazarus died and was in the grave four days and the Lord finally got there and raised him. With our God, nothing is impossible. So don't put limits on God. Oh, Lord, quick! You know, you got to answer this prayer right now. i got a small window of opportunity. If you don't answer it right away, I'm going to lose this opportunity. Good, lose it. Because he who believes shall not make what? He who believes shall not make haste. You got an important decision? There's no such thing as a, a, a window of opportunity. You pray. God will always give you time to pray when it comes to making important decisions. And uh, if you're being rushed, it's not of God. Because you'll only make a mistake when you rush into something important and don't spend time in prayer. But look, I also believe the bigger issue here, when I say he prayed inaccurately, he tried to manipulate the Lord through his prayers by pleading with him to come down to Capernaum. Why did he want him to come down to Capernaum? Well, apparently he felt the only way the Lord could heal his son was to be in close proximity with his son. Maybe lay hands on his son. I don't know. In his mind, he felt this was the way the Lord had to do it. So guys, listen to me. He, was, he, was, he didn't pray a direct prayer. He prayed a directional prayer. You said, what is that? A direct prayer is when you just bring your prayers directly to God and leave them there. Just leave them there. A directional prayer is when you bring your request to God, then try to direct God how he should handle it, how he should answer the prayer. This is the problem with uh, too many of God's people. 
we fit into this very category. We bring our requests to the Lord, um, and then we want to give him instructions on what he should do and how he should answer our prayer. Now, Lord, listen, uh, you know, here's, here's the request, and here's how I think you should handle it. Uh, you know, in our minds, we've got this all worked out to the point where if God doesn't start going down that road and things don't seem to be lining up the way we have it all figured out in our head, well, we get mad at God. We, act, we think he's not doing anything. He's not working at all. And that causes some people to get angry with the Lord, walk away, forget the whole thing. When in reality, he could be, doing, he could be answering your prayer at that very moment. But doing it the way he wants to do it. A way you would never have thought of. Because he's God. And he can work everything out. Be careful. I'm convinced a lot of Christians have missed the answers God wanted to give them. Because they were so busy trying to, do, to, to pray directional prayers to God where they wanted to get in there and help God with the answer to their prayers. That sometimes God said, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to answer that prayer, but I'm not going to let you be my Lord. And you're not going to turn me into your servant. So if that's the way you want to play this, then you're on your own. You know, I always think of Naaman the Syrian out of 2 Kings uh, 5. You know, if it's a turner, you can check it out later. But Naaman was a powerful Syrian general. And um, one day he and his men went down and uh, came against the northern cities of Israel. And they captured a bunch of people. One of them was like a little 10 or 12-year-old girl, Jewish girl. And they, he brought her back and gave the girl to his wife as a little handmaiden. Well, she was a upstanding little thing. She accepted the situation. must have been a strong faith in God. She accepted the situation as being in God's sovereign will. And, uh, but, but Naaman had a problem. He was a leper. For all of his power and prestige and wealth, leprosy was incurable. So one day the little girl tells her mistress, her, her master, says, you know, if only my master were down in Israel. There's a prophet down there named Elisha who could heal him. So the wife tells the husband, Naaman. Naaman comes to the king of Syria, tells him. King of Syria says, okay, fine. Writes a letter to the king of Israel to give to the king when Naaman, Naaman gets down there. The letter basically said, look, uh, king of Syria, it's my servant Naaman. Uh, when he gets there, will you heal him of his leprosy? The king of Israel looks at him and goes, look at this, to his guys. This guy's trying to pick a fight. Nobody can heal leprosy. What is this all about, right? And somebody says, well, no, the king, I think, you know, there's a, a man here in Israel, Elisha, you know, who can heal this man's leprosy. So he sends Naaman over to the house of Elisha. And Elisha had been given God, by God this incredible ability to, to know what was coming. So he knew Naaman was coming. And when Naaman knocked on the door, Elisha didn't even get out of his chair. He sent Gehazi, his servant, to open the door and talk to Naaman. So Gehazi opens the door and just says, look, uh, my master says, go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River, you'll be healed. Naaman's furious. He's, fur He's not used to be being treated like that. He's a dignitary. He's a powerful guy, right? He expects people to bow when he enters a room, right? He was furious that Elisha didn't even bother to come and see him himself. He, st he starts storming away, and here's what he said. He said, I thought he was going to come out and pray over me and wave, wave his hands over me and heal me. Well, that's your problem. You're, you're, you, that was how you figured he ought to do it. 
he almost missed the miracle. He starts, he starts going back home furious. We got better rivers up in Damascus. I should dip in that dirty Jordan River. So he starts to leave and his servants run after him and says, Master, Master, wait. If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, you would have done it right. Why not this little thing? All right. So he dips himself seven times in the Jordan. And he comes up the seventh time and he's completely healed of his leprosy. But I think Naaman becomes a good example of a lot of, for a lot of us. That, you know, I'm wondering how many times we have missed something God has wanted to do. Because we had it all figured out and God had to do it a certain way. And uh, when he didn't start going in that direction, we just wrote the whole thing off. Stopped praying. Turned our back on him, maybe. What am I saying? Let God be God. Bring your request to him and then leave them there. Let him work it out the way he wants to work it out. I never tell God what to do. Okay. First of all, he wouldn't listen to me anyways. But I, I never tell him what to do. I don't even give him suggestions. Because I understand this. Okay? I mean, his way is perfect. I'm going to give him a suggestion. Probably the wrong suggestion. going to only work out badly. I Just let God be God, right? So in verse 50 of John 4, Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went, and he went his way. Now at this point, guys, Jesus elevated this man's faith from having to see a miracle to simply believing the word of the Lord. You say, well, how did that happen, though? I mean, what changed him? I mean, Jesus just says, your son's healed, and the guy went away peaceful? Why did he believe I mean, a miracle, that's pretty powerful. I mean, you see somebody work a miracle, that's a powerful thing to connect your faith to. Why did this man just take the word of Jesus like he did? I don't know. One commentator suggested it's when he looked into Jesus' eyes. When he saw Jesus' countenance. How calm, how caring how certain i mean jesus was he said Go, your son your son's he lives when he looked in the face of jesus he had faith so, something he had faith isn't that interesting what is another title for jesus christ the word of god you say i can't look into jesus face how can i you know you're looking into Jesus' face right now. It's in your lap. It's called the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. That's how you look into Jesus' face. That's how you have faith that he's going to work. He's given you a promise. And if he's given you a promise in his word, you can take it to the bank, as they say. It's as good as done. That's where the writer to the Hebrews says, look, in chapter 11, verse 1, faith is believing. In fact, faith is rejoicing. As if something that God has promised that you haven't seen happen yet, but you rejoice in it as if you are looking at it, that you can touch it, because you believe if God said it, if he made a promise to you, it's going to be, it's going to happen. 
That's the kind of faith that honors God. That's the kind of faith that praises him. That's, that's the kind of faith that is a demonstration, uh, the, uh, that, that brings praise, which is a demonstration of faith. Okay, we've seen the desperate father, the, the displeased savior, the determined suppliant, and number five, the divine miracle. Verse 51, and as he was now going down, his servants met him and told, he didn't, he, he didn't, he had business to attend to, probably. Again, you know, two birds with one stone kind of thing. He had to go down, he heard Jesus was up in, in Cana, and he had business somewhere in the region, and so he thought, I'm going to seek this guy out for my son. But after Jesus told him, your son lives, go your way, he then went about conducting his business. Uh, as we're going to see, this was about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So he doesn't go home right away, conducts business, spends the night. And as he's on his way home the next day, his servants come. It says here in verse 51, as he was going back, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of, uh, of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that would be about one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. So the father knew it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he, and he himself believed and his whole household. Don't miss this. The day before when Jesus said, your son lives, he's well, he's healed. He believed that Jesus had healed his son. Now he believes that Jesus is his savior and receives him as his Savior and Lord. The first day he received a healing for his son. The second day he received salvation for himself and his entire family. And guys, that's always the purpose of miracles, never to entertain us, but to point people to Jesus that they might receive him as Savior and Lord and be saved. Didn't John say this to end his gospel, chapter 20, or near the end, verses 30 and 31? He said, many other things Jesus did in the way of miracles. But I have chosen these, that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have eternal life through his name. Let me just say this as we close. Um, miracles can encourage a person to believe, or they can strengthen existing faith. But miracles by themselves must never be the foundation upon which faith is built. Only the Word of God. Only the Word of God. Why is it so important to build your faith on the Word of God and not on miracles? Very simply because we are in the last days. And as the writers of the New Testament warned us, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself also warned us, that demonic signs and wonders in the last days would be on the increase. In Matthew 24... You can turn there. Matthew 24. When the disciples came to Jesus and asked him to tell them what was going to happen in the last days, the days just prior to his return, look at the first thing he said to them in verse 4. Take heed that no one what? Deceives you. Take heed that no one deceives you. And then he goes on to teach that these were going to be days of unprecedented worldwide spiritual deception. Verse 24, for false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I told you beforehand. Paul the Apostle, picking up no doubt on what the Lord said, expanding on it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
said in verse 9, the Antichrist will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refused, they refused to love and accept the truth of God. In other words, the gospel or the word of God is in view that they might be saved. We are in those last days. Already the spiritual deception is ramping up. And the problem is many, many who profess to be Christians are falling into spiritual deception. They're getting into demonic doctrines of demons that have been Christianized. I don't have time to get into it today. But there is coming to the church what Paul warned in the last days. Uh, he said that... Uh, People would give in the church, would give heed to deceiving spirits and embrace doctrines of demons. We're seeing these doctrines coming into the church and they've been Christianized. Okay? So, visualization, contemplative prayer, it's always been practiced in the occult, are now Christianized to be wonderful new prayer techniques that will help you to draw close to God and get your prayers answered. And there are so many others. We are living in the last days, a time when the New Testament says miracles would be on the increase. And folks, let me just tell you this. When Jesus talked about these characters would do signs and wonders, and Paul talked about them doing, the Antichrist and his followers doing signs and wonders, it's the same Greek words used of Jesus' signs and wonders. These are real miracles. But when Jesus did a miracle, it always pointed to truth. Primarily himself is the way of salvation. When these folks do miracles, it always points people away from Jesus down some broad road that will lead them to hell. Let's finish. Verse 54. John said, This again is the second sign Jesus did when he came up, when he came out of Judea into Galilee. The statement by John, be careful, isn't saying that this was the second miracle that Jesus ever performed that would contradict John 2.23 and John 3, verse 2, but rather that this was the second miracle he performed in Cana of Galilee. Now let me end by just saying that the Holy Spirit moved, of course he did, in the heart of John to include this man's story in his gospel because his story is really our story. A person with a need that no one but Jesus could meet. A desperate man who comes to Jesus humbly, broken, begging for mercy. And yet, and don't miss this, if it wasn't for his dying son, he probably would have never bothered with Jesus. It was, it was his need that drew him to the Savior, plain and simple. I mean, he had no great desire to know the Messiah of Israel. No burning desire to know the God of the Jewish people. It was purely out of, physical, out of a physical, emotional need that he comes. Someone has said affliction is often God's medicine. It's interesting that God said in Isaiah 19, sometimes I have to hurt you to heal you. It's like when you go to a doctor and they determine you have a tumor somewhere. 
And so they schedule surgery. You're scared. Surgery is not pleasant. It hurts. But you understand that the surgeon has to hurt you to heal you. And sometimes in our Christian lives, there are things that God needs to get at. They are restricting our walk with him in some way. Keeping us unhealthy. And so he has to put us through trials, which become, well, the adversities that he uses to um, do the surgery, if you will. Again, Jesus, the great physician. Heart surgery. Removing things that are hindering our walk. Because he wants us to have the closest relationship with him possible. Look, it's true that sometimes suffering and sorrow are God's greatest tools to draw someone to the Savior. Or, if you already know him, to draw you closer to him. And very often, again, God uses a physical need, which he intends to meet. But he uses the physical need to bring you to your greatest need, which was salvation. I mean, guys, I can't tell you how many people uh, I have read about, athletes who were professional football players, we'll say, at the top of their game, top of their career, making big money. Uh, they didn't want anything to do with God. You know, they were too busy partying and making money and driving, uh, you know, hot cars and dating, you know, beautiful women and whatever. And it wasn't until they blew their knee out and their career was over that all of a sudden now, God got a hold of their heart and they were saved. He uses this all the... I can't tell you how many people I have ministered to over the years who really didn't want anything to do with God until the cancer came, the diagnosis. And it was through that that they wanted receiving Christ and got saved. You say, well, isn't that a little cruel for God to do that? Let me ask you this. What is crueler? To make, give a person a wonderful problem-free life where they spend eternity in hell? Or to give them some adversity on this earth where they come to Christ and spend eternity in heaven? I'll let you answer that question. This man came with a physical need, <laughs> like the Lord. You always come for something small, we'll say, and he always has something big in mind. Fourteen years ago, I prayed, Lord, I want to be used more. Will you use me more? In my mind, honestly, I'm thinking, could you give me a small group to teach? He did that. It's our Thursday morning men's Bible study. But you know what he did? He put us on the radio. Where now I wasn't just teaching four or five guys. I was, the word was getting out to, to thousands. My heart was to be used. In my limited capacity, I said, well, here's a great way to be used, Lord. Small group. God's thinking, Phil. Yeah, okay, I'll give you the small group. But, you know, you're limiting me. I got bigger plans. Just let God be God, okay? This man comes with a physical need, wound up with a spiritual gift of salvation. It's amazing. It's okay to come to Jesus with a need. I don't think there's ever been a person in the history of the world that hasn't come to Jesus with some kind of a need. But whatever your need is that causes you to turn to Jesus for help, remember this, your greatest need, listen to me, your greatest need is for forgiveness and eternal life. That's your greatest need. 
Whatever your need is this morning, bring it to Jesus. He encourages you to. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you, are, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Bring your request to me. But you have to couple that with Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else you need in the physical, I'll take care of. Don't live at the level of the physical. Live at the level of the spirit. Make that the priority. Serving me, building my kingdom. Everything you need in the physical, I'll take care of. I know what you need. I'll take care of it. Don't focus on it. May that be the word of the Spirit to our hearts this morning. You know? Don't limit God. Let God be God. And be open to whatever he wants to do in your life. Because I believe he's got awesome plans for all of us if we will come to him and trust him and take him at his word. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. We thank you, Lord, that you put this story in your word of a man who wasn't really seeking you until his son got ill. And then he sought you with passion, broken, humble. Lord, give us grace to understand your adversities aren't meant to push us farther from you. They're meant to draw us closer to you. They serve a purpose. Give us grace and faith to trust you for whatever that purpose may be. We just thank you, Lord. And Father, everyone here this morning who has come with a need, whether that be need be financial or physical, Maybe someone they love is very sick, possibly a spouse or a parent or a child. They're crying out to you for grace and mercy. Lord, answer their prayers. But Lord, the greatest need we have is for forgiveness and salvation. So impress that upon each person's heart that they get their lives right with you while there's still time. Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.